Let's jump into uh, John 11, or sorry, John chapter 3. Um, I don't know about you, but we spend, my family spends a lot of time in the car. We are shuttling kids from, you know, one place to the other, from one practice to the other, from one rehearsal to the other, and uh, we spend a lot of time in the car. Now, some of you are moving to northwest Arkansas from big cities, and you hear us complain about traffic here, and what that means is it takes us like 25 minutes to get from where we are to where we want to be, and you're coming from metropolitan areas, and you're like, please, stop complaining. But I'm telling you, it'll happen the longer you live here. At some point, you're going to be like, Fayetteville, oh my gosh, I cannot drive all the way to Fayetteville. Like, you're going to be conditioned to think that Fayetteville is on the other side of the earth at some point. And, um, as a former mayor of Bentonville reminded us as we were trying to solve some traffic problems one time, he said, hey, look, there are more people in Dallas waiting to turn left than we have cars on the road here in northwest Arkansas. Let's put it all in perspective, please. However, here we are, we're shuttling our kids, they're going to piano recitals, they're going to rehearsals, they're going to baseball practices, and we spend a lot of time in the car. And, and I remember that same experience. Um, I wonder what the soundtrack of, of those commutes will be for my kids. What is it that they're going to remember? And because I'm a Christian and a follower of Jesus, I do listen to KLRC. I think, um, you know, listening to Christ, Christian radio is um, one of the bare minimums uh, requirements uh, to be a follower of Jesus. So um, I, I, I listen to KLRC, but I have to tell you, just full disclosure, there is only so much sunshine I can take being pumped into my car every day, okay? The positive difference wears on me just a little bit. Um, everything is rainbows and unicorns all the time. And, um, and, you know, it does help me when I'm frustrated uh, in traffic. However, I want my kids to know that this is the real world. And I need to bring them down from the positive difference, and I need to infuse some negativity into their life. And so we switch over to NPR, and we get a dose of the real world. And so one of the things they're going to remember is they replay the soundtrack of our commutes, Dad bringing, bringing them down into the muck and the mire of real life and hearing the NPR news desk report on the current events of the day. So they're going to remember names like Corva Coleman and Jack Spear and Mary Louise Kelly and Lakshmi Singh. Like that's going to be the soundtrack, I think, that they're going to remember of all, all the time we spend in the car. I remember those moments. I remember just the cumulative effect of, of time my parents spent shuttling me around the bustling metropolis of Orangeburg, South Carolina. And uh, I Political talk radio was a relatively new thing. I think my parents were enamored by it. And so that was kind of always buzzing. I just remember everyone being angry. I just remember everyone always being upset. And so the soundtrack of my childhood were all these angry people talking about everything that's wrong in the world um, and um, just announcing that the sky was always falling. And so I, I just I remember kind of that soundtrack. And uh, I eventually just learned to kind of tune all that out. But what I did look forward to is if we were commuting somewhere around 5 or 6 o'clock, um, this radio station would carry a segment called The Rest of the Story by legendary broadcaster Paul Harvey. And I bet you remember that segment, don't you? 
What Paul, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, what Paul Harvey would do is he would take a story. He would take a, a famous person and he would tell a little-known fact about their life. And the, his segments would tell stories everywhere, everyone from, from JFK to Elvis and, and everyone in between. He would begin drawing you in and telling you a story, and you wouldn't know who the story was about. And he would draw in all these kind of little-known historical facts and at the end of the segment, he would reveal who he's talking about. And he would say, oh, I never knew that about so-and-so. And the last thing he would say, there's people in the room here that can quote it, is he would sign off by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. Yeah, that's your soundtrack as well, isn't it? There's a little bit of that that we have to do here as we come to John 3.16. This is a famous passage. There's, there's, there's so much that goes behind it, but it's a famous passage. It's one of the first stories that we can quote. There are some volunteers that are working with our kids. They worked with them in, in the first hour, our preschool teachers and our kindergarten teachers, and they were teaching our kids the story of the Bible. Somewhere in that curriculum, one of the memory verses that they're going to learn is John 3, 16. It's one of the first verses that we learn, and it encapsulates the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of what Jesus came to do and who God is, is this verse that says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But long before this verse was famous, long before people put it on placards and held it up at sporting events, long before athletes put John 3.16 on their eye black, which you know made them jump higher and run faster than the non-Christian athletes. You know that, right? Long before we were doing that, there is a story here. This, this verse comes to us in the midst of Jesus having a conversation. And so today I want to go behind the scenes, and, and maybe help us learn a little bit of the rest of the story behind John 3, 16. There's a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus. And if you don't know anything about Pharisees, they were the religious elite of that time. And Nicodemus recognized that something was significant about Jesus's ministry. Something was going on here. He was drawn to it. He was curious. But he would not risk coming to Jesus during the day because that might connect him with this upstart rabbi that the religious establishment was very suspicious of. So he wouldn't come to Jesus during the day, but he did arrange a, a clandestine rendezvous with Jesus at night. And John is very careful to tell us that this encounter takes place at night. And it begins the way you might expect an encounter with a religious official to begin. It begins like this. Rabbi uh, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus looks at Jesus and says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. What I want you to notice there is Nicodemus asserting his knowledge. He's saying, we know. Jesus, let me tell you what we know about you. In fact, let me tell you what I know about pretty much everything. Because I'm a religious official. I'm a rabbi myself. It sort of is what we do. It is who we are. We, we know things. That's kind of what we're known for as a group of people that know things. And I know pretty much everything there is to know about the Torah, 
and you seem to be saying some things that doesn't, that these things don't really square with what I know to be true. So we know certain things. And Jesus begins to take Nicodemus on a journey that reveals how much he doesn't know. Jesus says this, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this phrase, born again, it's, it's a really common phrase, especially if you're connected to the evangelical faith. This is sort of the hallmark of, of what we believe about coming to faith, is that, that you, you come to a moment in which you hear the gospel, you hear this good news, and you respond in faith, and you begin your life again. You are born again into the Christian faith by putting your hope and your trust in Jesus. But what you may not realize about this phrase in the original language, this phrase that we translate as born again, it actually has a secondary meaning. And translators are actually sort of torn over how to translate it. You could translate it unless you are born again, or you could translate it from above, unless you are born from above, unless you experience a birth that is from heaven. We've all experienced a birth that is from the earth. That's why we're here today. But unless you experience this new birth that comes from above in which your life becomes oriented by the things of God, you can't be a part of this kingdom. Well, which one did Jesus mean? And I would argue that Jesus is a master of language, and I think he meant both. I think he meant that there is a, there is a secondness or there is, some, there is a, a, a new start that has to happen to come into this kingdom. There is something that has to happen again but it has to be completely new. And it can't be like your old birth from the earth. It has to be from above. It's a new creation. Jesus meant both. And Nicodemus isn't understanding either, really. And I think the reason we translate this born again is because of what Nicodemus says next. He says, well, how can you enter into your mother's womb again? Jesus, I'm not tracking with you. This is not making sense to me. Nicodemus has no imagination for what new things God might be wanting to do. He has no imagination for anything outside of what he knows to be true, what he knows has always been the case. He has no imagination for anything outside the traditions of his people. And I hope that we can kind of capture the the scandal what Jesus is saying. Uh, this is one of the rare instances in which John reaches into the synoptics and he grabs some of the imagery from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Where, you remember in those passages, Jesus said, in, those, in, in all three of those, Jesus says, unless you receive this kingdom as a little child. Unless you receive this kingdom as a little child, you, you, you're not going to get it. And so John reaches kind of into that imagery and helps us think about being born as an infant into this kingdom. What is it that we know about infants? Well, (laughs) if you're a new parent, you would say, oh, not much. I'm sort of scared about this, actually. But one of the things we know is that they're completely helpless. They're completely vulnerable. They're completely dependent upon the love and the care of their parents. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this learned person, This person with credentials and degrees and prestige and power and rights and privileges, he's saying, if you want to be a part of this thing that God is doing, you have to be born again as 
you, as a child comes into the earth, you have to come in with no rights, no privileges, no power, no prestige. It's a completely new start. And this is scandalous for Nicodemus. He can't imagine receiving anything like an infant. And I wonder what privileges do we bring into this adventure of following Jesus? I mean, when you heard the gospel, when you heard the good news, you heard this invitation to, to, to live forever. You heard this invitation to receive eternal life. It sounded real, like a really good deal. Jesus does all this work on the cross because Christ has been raised. We too will be raised. That's a, that's a good deal. But one of the things that we don't realize is that the, or is often overlooked, is that to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus is to say, all my rights, all my privileges, all my prestige, I lay that all down. And we don't want to surrender our rights. There's certain things that we're entitled to do. For instance, if someone wrongs you, it's common for us to think of one of the things you're entitled to do is to wrong them back. That's justice. It's retributive. They did it to me, I'm going to do it to them. It's my right. It's what I deserve. They are going to get what they deserve. And one of the things Jesus is saying is, no, to enter into this kingdom, to follow me, to come out of the darkness where Nicodemus is into the light, you surrender those rights. You surrender those privileges. You come as a child and you learn a new way of talking, a new way of walking, a new way of breathing, a new way of acting in the world that models the ways of Jesus. It's not really computing for Jesus, or it's not really computing for Nicodemus. Look what Jesus goes on to say. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Jesus is continuing to help Nicodemus understand what this is all about. And one of the things that we need to understand as we kind of unpack this, you're going to hear the word flesh in Scripture multiple places. And one of those places is Paul the writings of Paul, the letters of Paul. And he's going to talk about works of the flesh, deeds of the flesh, sins of the flesh. And sometimes that's going to be translated sinful nature. Flesh is going to be associated with sin. But John's coming at this in a wholly different, from a wholly different place. Sarks, the word translated for flesh, is, is different in John's imagination than it is for Paul. Because what John says is, in John 1.14, he says, in, and the word became flesh. The word became sarks. Jesus became flesh. And what John is wanting us to see is that, that flesh is not sinful nature here. Flesh is the, the limitations of humanity. It is the frailty of humanity. It is the human experience. And so flesh gives birth to flesh. When you're only thinking about things in terms of the human experience, you're always going to be limited by those, those categories. But God is doing something completely different. He is sending a new spirit into the world, and this spirit is going to inhabit 
bodies made of flesh, and it's going to enliven and awaken these bodies made of flesh to new realities that previously were not possible. In fact, Jesus fulfills what Ezekiel prophesied. Over in Ezekiel 36, God gives Ezekiel a vision for what he's going to do when Messiah comes and when this new age of the Spirit begins. And Ezekiel tells the exiles, get ready. Something good is about to happen. The Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you, here's a good use of flesh, a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit, capital S, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The history of Israel is marked by disobedience. That's what got them into exile in the first place. But Ezekiel is saying to the exiles, look, when the Messiah comes, when this new age begins, when this, this pinnacle of God's redemptive activity occurs, it's going to be like a, a, our heart of stone is taken out of us and we're going to be given a heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive to the ways and the things of God. A new spirit is going to enliven us and this spirit is going to move us to follow God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And who's the first person to do this? It's Jesus of Nazareth. One who was flesh and spirit. One who was both God and man. Jesus models for us what it looks like for flesh to walk in absolute faithfulness to God. It, he models for us what it looks like for flesh to be completely responsive to the ways of God. And the gospel is this. The good news of Jesus Christ is this, that the faithfulness and the obedience and the love and the mercy and the grace and the kindness and everything that we love about Jesus, everything that draws us to the message of Jesus, that life can be a reality for us because we're born again and we're also born from above. We are created in the image of God, flesh and bone, created in God's image and able to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, able to be filled with the Holy Spirit, able to have this heart of stone taken away and like Jesus, have this heart of flesh that is responsive to the ways of God. But know this about this thing God wants to do in your life. And Jesus says, you know the wind you see the effects of the wind. You hear the sound. But Nicodemus, make no mistake about it, you cannot control it. And that's the problem for us. You mean to be in this way of Jesus, to have this heart of flesh, to live this life that's responsive to the ways and the plans and the purposes of God, I don't get to control it? Oh, that's, that's not as good of a deal as I, I thought it was. Because can we be honest with one another for a second? We like to be in control. One of the most frustrating things about the pandemic has been the loss of certainty. It, 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 I mean, we're, we're coming through 14, 15 months of inability to make any plans 
The rug's always going to get pulled out from under us. The regulations are always going to change. The case count's going to go up. The case count's going to go down. The hospital's going to say one thing. The hospital's going to say something else. The, this group's saying this. This group's saying that. The loss of certainty. It's debilitating. Because we are a people that we like control. We like to predict our next move. We like to know what's happening. And what Jesus is saying about living with this new heart with the spirit that fills us, we have now surrendered that control to God. And this spirit blows where it pleases. And this spirit takes us to places we might not want to go. And this spirit prompts us to say things we might not want to say. And this spirit moves us to love and forgive people we might not want to love and forgive because they're just hard people to love and they're impossible people to forgive. But this spirit is blowing where it pleases. And we are invited to surrender that control to the spirit. You see, this is a hard sell for Nicodemus. Nicodemus stays in the dark all throughout the gospel of John. And if we're not careful, we will as well. Because unwillingness to surrender our rights and our control, it's going to keep us in the darkness. It's going to keep us in this state in which we are handicapped in our ability to follow Jesus. We're living in the darkness because we're maintaining the, the sovereignty of our rights and we're maintaining our control of our situations. We're not surrendering. We're not yielding to the will of the Spirit. And so we stay in the darkness. And what Jesus will go on to say is that you cannot live in the darkness and be my follower. You have to come into the light. You have to come into the light. This new birth that God wants to happen in our lives, it demands a discipleship. It demands a following and Nicodemus, uh, he is not the model disciple here. But too often he's the typical disciple. Too often our journey with Jesus looks more like Nicodemus than it does some of the other characters we meet in the Gospels. We focus too much on what we know, what we can predict, what we can control. And Jesus is inviting us to exchange all that, to be born again and to be born from above so that we have a heart that is open and responsive to the things of God. You may be familiar with a character from church history. His name is John Wesley. And he's the founder of Methodism. And he began as a pastor in the Church of England in the 1700s. His father before him was a pastor in the Church of England. And so as he was setting out and thinking about what he wanted to do with his life, he decided to be a pastor. And he went to Oxford University, where they trained pastors and had a very accomplished academic career. He would go on to complete an advanced degree in, in, uh, in biblical languages. And uh, he knew a lot. At a very young age, he was given his first church. And then not too long after that, he was named lecturer or teaching fellow at Lincoln College at Oxford University. And like Nicodemus, there was a lot that, that he knew. The British Empire was expanding at this time, and they were, they were taking new territories, and the, what we now know as the United States of America was no exception there, and there were colonies here in America. And sort of the 
spirit of colonialism and expansionism, it also captured the imagination of the church. And so the church says, as the British Empire expands, we need to expand as well. And Wesley was caught up in that, and he said, I'm going to go to Georgia. And there in Georgia, I'm going to convert the Native American people. I'm going to convert the colonists. I am going to take my understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of Georgia. And so he gets on a ship, he sails to Georgia, and he begins his ministry there. And historians are completely agreed that his ministry in Georgia was an absolute failure. Uh, just failed miserably among Native American people. The colonists rejected him. Uh, he was a little too Anglican in, in their minds, um, a little too British in their minds, and so they completely reject his ministry. And to top it all off, he gets his heart broken there. So his heart is broken, failed love interest, failed ministry among the Native Americans, uh, rejected by the colonists. He has no other option but to get on a ship and head back to England. On the way back to England, he encounters a group of people known as the Moravians. And the Moravians were a fringe religious group, but they were characterized by acts of piety and worship and devotion to God and study of the scriptures. And they were a very lively group of people, uh, people committed to the scriptures and studying them and, and committed to worship in, in ways that were um, sort of fringe compared to how God was worshipped in the Church of England. So he encounters this group of the Moravians there on, on the ship, and he's intrigued by them. He admires their study of the scripture, but he's also sort of taken back by the ways that they worship. And somewhere in between Georgia and Great Britain, a storm comes up on the Atlantic, and Wesley's ship is in the middle of it, and it looks as if it is almost certain that this vessel is going to capsize, everyone's going to perish. Wesley records being down in the hull of the ship, desperately praying, scared to death, asking that God would spare his life, spare the life of the crew, spare the ship, asking that God would get them safely there, just absolutely scared to death and scared of dying. And somewhere in the midst of the storm, he ventures up to the deck of the ship, and there on the deck of the ship are these Moravians. And what are they doing? Are they scared? They're having a worship service. They're singing. They're praising. They're worshiping God. They're certainly praying for their safety, but they have their arms open, and they're saying, God, we're in your hands to live as Christ, to die as gain. And Wesley, something connects in his head as he sees this group of people completely at rest with whatever God wants to do in that moment. And he says to himself, they have something that I don't have. Man, they have been born in such a way that God is doing something in their life that he has yet to do in mine. And I want to figure that out. <laughs> I, I want to explore this more. And so he began a relationship with the Moravians that would continue throughout his life. But what is it that they had? What is it that they had? They were living in the light. They were living in the light. 
And the story of Nicodemus is not the story of the Moravians. Nicodemus continues to live in the darkness. And Jesus, towards the end of this conversation, is wanting Nicodemus to come out of the darkness. Come out. Come into the light. And he, he just gets it all down to, to, to the bottom line here. And he says to Nicodemus in verse 14, he says, Nicodemus, look, what you have to understand is just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And Jesus is taking a story from Israel's past, this moment where the children of Israel, they're in the desert, and they begin to worship other gods, and God sends a plague to, to, to bring them to repentance, and these snakes, they enter into the camp, and they, and they bite some people, and people get sick, and some people die. And it looks as if the whole assembly of Israel is going to perish by this plague that God sends into the camp. But God says to Moses, take a, take a bronze snake, put it on a staff, and I want you to hold it up in the middle of the camp. And I want you to tell people that if they'll look to that snake, to look to that bronze serpent in faith, I'll forgive them and I will heal them. And so that's exactly what Moses does. He lifts up the bronze serpent and those that are sick, they look and they live. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I have come here to be lifted up. I've come here to die for the sins of the world. I've come here to take the shame and the guilt of the world on myself. And I'm going to be lifted up from the earth. And in that moment, I'm going to demonstrate to you and to all who see this, this is how much God loves the world. God loves the world this much that he would give his one and only son to demonstrate the depths of his love. Nicodemus, when I am lifted up, I'm going to make atonement for the sins of the world. And for those who look, they will live. For those who put their faith and their trust in what I am doing to make atonement for the sins of the world, they will live. And the beauty of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, friends. You see, this moment happened. Jesus was crucified. He was put on a cross. He was lifted up from the earth. And in that moment, the sins of the world were atoned for. Our mistakes were forgiven. Our failures were made right. Everything that was wrong with the world was made whole through the, through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a moment in time that happened. But what the Holy Spirit does for us is enables us to experience that moment as if it was happening right now. The saving presence of the Holy Spirit takes us to the foot of the cross. It takes us to that moment where, where God atoned for the sins of the world. It takes us to that moment where we can know that our sins are, are forgiven, that they're cast as far as the east is from the west. And so when we gather in worship, what the worship team is doing for us, you know what they're doing? They're exalting Jesus. They're lifting Jesus up from the earth. They're having us think about the cross. They're having us think about redemption. What happens when we gather in life groups and we study the scriptures? God's Holy Spirit comes and Jesus is lifted up again. We see just how much God loves us. What happens when you go to God's word and you begin to read, you begin to meditate on what God has revealed to us? The Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit lifts up Jesus and you begin to see what God has done for you. So what I love about the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is 
is Jesus is lifted up physically in the cross. But this moment of atonement is made present in all times and all places through the Spirit. We can experience this moment of of forgiveness at all times and in all places through the Spirit. We can go to the foot of the cross and we can see just how much God loves us. And we need that reminder. We need that reminder of how much God loves us because we fail in so many ways. We fall short in so many ways. And the enemy of our soul would come to us and would want our life to be racked with guilt and shame. But the Holy Spirit comes and takes us to the cross. And we're able to see what God has done for us. And we look and live through Jesus. So to finish the Wesley story, what did, what did they have? that he didn't have? What, what is it that God had done in their life that, that God had not done in his life? It was a year later after he did end up safely arriving in Great Britain. It's a year later on May 24th, 1738, he was going to meet with these Moravians because there was just something going on there that he had to learn more about. And he went to a gathering with the Moravians on a street called Aldersgate Street in London. And they were gathered there to study the book of Romans. And one of the things they were going to do to study the book of Romans is they were going to read Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. I've read Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And uh, it's not as inspiring as it was for Wesley. But God showed up. God showed up. And he records this moment as he gathers with the Moravians to study the book of Romans The preface of Luther's commentary is being read, and here's what he writes. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and save me from the law of sin and of death. Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed. He had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed up, and he was at the foot of the cross again, and he was seeing what God had done for him. And friends, I I think today, especially for those who have been close to the church, we've been connected to the church, we've heard tons of sermons, and we've been in tons of worship services, and this can all kind of feel commonplace after, after a time. But maybe what we need to do today, not maybe, for sure, what we need to do today is we need to allow the Holy Spirit to take us to the foot of the cross, take us again to that moment where Jesus stretched himself out on a cross, take us again to that moment where Jesus hands were pierced for us. Take us again to that moment where a spear pierced his side and where he hung there on a cross and he said to the world, I love you this much. There's nothing you can do that would make you make me love you any less. There's nothing you can do that would make me love you anymore. I love you just the way that you are. I accept you. Your sins are forgiven and you don't have to live this life of defeat. 
You don't have to live this life of sin. You can live this born again, born from above life in which your heart is responsive and made new to the things of God. Oh, that that kind of life would characterize our story. I think what God wants to do in our life as we tell the story of our lives What God wants to do is that we would not stack up our accolades, not stack up our achievements, not stack up all the things that we've done or the money that we've made. What God wants to do is we're born from above and born again is to say to the world, you know, of all the things I've said or I've done, good or bad, my life has meaning because of this one thing, that God so loved the world. And because he so loved the world, That includes me. And God so loved me enough that he would give his one and only son. And by giving his one and only son, I didn't have to live in darkness. I could come into the light. I could know that my sins were forgiven. I could know that this life that God has given me, this abundant life in Christ, it continues unending in eternity. This is how much God loves me. This is the rest of my story And nothing else matters. Do you know that to be true? Is that your story? The worship team's going to sing, and and Pastor Chad's going to lead us in this this song. And as they do, I, I I would just say that I know there's someone here. You're a little like Wesley. Man, the waves are crashing in over your life. You don't know what your next move is. You don't know where to turn. You're not really sure if God loves you or not. You're not really sure if your sins are forgiven or not. You're not really sure if God is present or not. You've heard the story. You've been to church. You've read the Bible. But could the Holy Spirit come in His saving presence and give you an assurance of salvation? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to come to you today and speak to your heart and give you this assurance that your sins, yes, your sins are forgiven, that you have a new life, that you have a hope, that you have a future? Could we go again to the foot of the cross? Could we see how much God loves us? And, and, and could we just ask God to give us this assurance of our salvation?